Welcome to the GC On Demand podcast, a show about people, about process, about technology, about community. It's great conversations with great technologists about things that matter to you, that matter to all of us. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to visit gcondemand.io for all of the show notes. And with that, let's get started. All right, everybody, and welcome to the GC On Demand podcast this week. My name is Eric Wright. For the folks that are new, uh, you can find me. I'm Disco Posse on Twitter. I'm also Disco Posse in the Green Circle community, which is where you see the show notes for the GC On Demand podcast. This is a really interesting uh, opportunity here today because we get to dive into an area that we really don't spend enough time in, and and I'm really excited about our guest we have today, uh, both as you know his history in the industry and 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 what he's bringing to the the chat today, as well as uh, some neat stuff that we're going to talk about uh, with a company called 128 Technology. With that, I'd like to uh, welcome Patrick to the show. Patrick, if you want to introduce yourself and tell us where we can find you online, and then we're going to sort of talk about you know, the neat things that you're doing with uh, 128. Sure. Thank you, Eric, very much. Um, my name is Patrick Malampi, and I'm the Chief Operating Officer of uh, 128 Technology. And um, you can always, always reach me online at uh, pmalampi at 128technology.com. And so, first of all, thank you, Eric, for get, giving us a chance to um, speak to your audience. Uh, 128 Technology is a startup company that started about two and a half years ago. We, we actually believe that um, networking technology is going to change dramatically. You know, if you look at all the ways in which the data networks are working today, um, it all goes, it really hasn't changed much at all since 1992 or 93. All the sort of networking protocols that are at the top of uh, like BGP4, OSPF version 2, uh, versions of TCP, virtually all these things stopped changing or stopped improving and stopped evolving around 1993. There's been a lot of evolution in networking in other areas, uh, in overlay technologies, in MPLS, in um, uh, middle boxes, firewalls, SBCs, deep, deep packet inspection, and essentially, our networks have grown to be very, very complicated. And in the, in the last decade or so, with the advent of mobility and people bringing their own devices and moving around, and servers leaving the small, uh, the, the local area networks and moving across town into big data centers and essentially the cloud movement, networking is, has not evolved. And so now, um, there are hundreds, if not uh, thousands, of private networks that are um, where routing stops at the border. Routing protocols and security and, and connectivity stops at the border where the private networks meet the public networks. And there's IPv6 networks that don't talk to IPv4 networks. And so all of these networks combined are what we call the internet. And yet, they're managed separately, and their routing tables and their uh, techniques for interconnecting are all through NATs. And these NATs um, uh, are done very statefully by things like NAT64 devices or firewalls. 
And in the end-to-end -end sort of routing models don't work. And you know, it's getting worse because in the last, I'd say, five years, um, the notion of virtual networking or overlay networking or tunnels uh, is now uh, becoming the new, the, the new normal. And when people can't get a packet to go where they want, they say, "Well, we'll just, we'll just create a tunnel." We'll just do so an overlay network. To... Actually, I'm going to stop you there, Patrick. It's, that's kind of a, yeah. a really hot topic that I find people get hung up on is, you know, like sort of the fundamentals of networking, you know, people kind of, they've really only just now started to really wrap their head around it and be comfortable just as we realize the classic thing. You know, we've hit the, you know, I call it the IPv4 debt clock, right? Like we know we're, we're officially out of addresses except for subbed out into a bunch of cloud providers. You know, IPv6 people, you know, are being told we're not ready for it as consumers, and yet a lot of providers still aren't ready for it. And then we get into the complexity around like understanding where to do overlay networks. Now, your your technology is very interesting. And how did you, how do you find people take it when you start this conversation of like, you know, here's where we are today. Do you see them like the eyes kind of glaze over? They're like, I, do they get lost fast? Because really, I think SDN, and this concept of like what you're doing with secure vector routing and such, it's it really feels like the deep end of the pool for a lot of folks. So how's the reception been for you? Well, that's a very good question. We um, seem to do quite well. I mean, we, we pitch uh, you know our prospective customers, and they're typically very technical uh, CIO, CTO types, and they're very, very frustrated with the complexity of networking. And so when, when we have a sort of back to the future presentation about how things could be, if you could reimagine it and re-evolve it, in general, there's, there, there's very, very warm reception. Um, people do not like overlay networks. They're, they create problems. They, they, they create more problems than they solve. And they create um, aggregate flows that are hard to manage. They create um, packets that are fragmented. They create difficulty uh, to understand what's inside of them. There's an information or a, a analytics challenges. And uh, so we actually get a, a very good reception when they say, how can you avoid the overlay? And we, and we, we describe our technique of doing secure vector routing. And I don't know if it's possible to take a minute to describe it. We actually believe that every valid use of the internet involves uh, uh, more than one packet. It involves a series of packets that go between a source and a destination. And, and we call that a session. You could think of it as a TCP layer or UDP layer session. And what we believe is that if routers could understand sessions, and uh, they could actually route much more intelligently. They could, they could um, be more efficient. They could be smarter. They could um, signal, add some extra information uh, when packets, when a new session is being routed to help route the session um, with more uh, precision. And so that's what we're doing. Um, you know, instead of tunneling, we're adding a little bit of extra data and we're doing, um, uh, we're steering the packet like uh, in a LISP-like or uh, IPv6 segment routing-like fashion by doing a destination that and then restoring it at the end of the of the route, 
And that allows us to go from a private network through a public network into a private network or through a NAT64 between an IPv6, IPv4 network and continue to route the packet uh, correctly. Now, one of the things I'm always I'm really curious, I know people who are listening are going to say like, all right, what's, what is the, the overhead and the, the requirements that they're going to have in that process of, you know, packing, unpacking? And there's obviously there's going to be at least a nominal overhead in, in performing that task. And, and where is that handled and, and how, does, how does it fit in with current infrastructure today? Sure. So it's very, this is a really interesting question. And I think uh, I might get a little bit too nerdy on this. And if oh, I, no, if you I can never down, get too nerdy with this crowd. <laughs> well, so all of these techniques, whether it's MPLS or um, IPv6 segment routing or LISP or, uh, or a tunnel, a GRE tunnel, all of these technologies involve um, inserting some information in front of every packet and essentially moving all the bytes in a packet down to make room for some new information that goes in, in front. And that process of moving everything down and adding new headers or adding an, uh, uh, an encapsulating, encapsulating layer is very CPU uh, intensive. Not only do you have to move all those bytes, but then when you add the new headers, you have to re-walk the packet to compute a checksum. And so people talk about hardware support for VXLAN uh, as being something that they need to, to, to get to line rates. And that's because of how inefficient that process is. What is really efficient is what we're doing. We, if we only modify the first packet of a flow, and we modify it at the end of the packet, which is really easy to add on to. Um, and so like a TCP SYN packet, we might add additional data used to signal and route the, the session. And then we remove it at the end of the, um, the, the route and, when it, and restore the packet to its original integrity. This actually is very efficient. Secondly, packets 2 through N, we simply are natting. Now, natting is very efficient compared to encapsulating. With natting, all you have to do is change the addresses and adjust the checksum by the amount you changed it. So it's very, very fast. I, I, I would project that it's a hundredfold faster than encapsulating. And, and so we, we think what we're doing is far more efficient and um, less likely to fragment packets or create uh, what the problems that people have with aggregate flows. Now, when we think about, you know, where this happens and it's, I think that's the biggest challenge. People are also going to look and they'll say, "All right, that this is great, Patrick. We love this this concept, and conceptually, they 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 understand how it's going to happen." Now, how does this wrap into current infrastructure today, and and where do these handoffs occur, and, and you know, how does your technology in particular sort of wrap into you know somebody who's got an existing physical and and virtual network environment? Well. That, so, you know, right now a lot of the use cases involve putting routers that are like ours at edges of networks. I mean, the, our, our router still speaks all the old routing protocols and the other routers don't, wouldn't think of us as being different or more capable. Um, but and the truth is our routers are more capable and they know about other routers that have the same capabilities. And so when they do routes, uh, they have routes that are 
are to other routers of our type that support what, what we call our metadata. And that allows us to uh, signal for sessions uh, in, in, in this, you know, this technique works. So, you know, it, it doesn't mean you can't route to other routers or old-fashioned routers. You can. It just means that your route table now has uh, entries for routers that are, that are intelligent and, 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 and are capable of this technique. And obviously, then you would just latch on to current interior routing protocols to be able to to participate in that, and then same thing at the exterior gateways for the the uh, the outside boundaries. Exactly. So you could have a a branch office maybe has one of these routers, and and maybe there's one in the data center, and uh, you could connect those two private networks together uh, as the as, you know what you would have used a tunnel or an MPLS VPN uh, for in the past. You now can just connect them with a with a route that goes all the way through those all three of those networks, and those routes have directionality. They have uh, access controls, and they have things that should have been put into routes, you know, 20 years ago that that were never put in because uh, you, so for some reason routing just stopped evolving. It, it, the only dimension of evolution in routing has been speeds and feeds, and and not in any other way. Now, is there any is there any impact when we want to look at what end-to-end -end encryption would do when we want to do it at the network and at the packet layer? Like, how does that come into play if you've got a 128 solution in uh, across your like you know WAN and, and metropolitan networks? Well, you know, it's a fascinating question because uh, a lot of these tunnels um, and a lot of the overlay networks uh, do bulk encryption as well. And every time you do encryption, there's a security association where the the, the, the actual um, encryptor has to have a, a shared seek or you know a, a session, a, a cryptography session with the, the person who's going to decrypt it. And um, you know the, the interesting part is is those tend to be very stateful things, and they tend to also be at the tunnel origination and tunnel termination. And so it causes hub and spoke inefficiencies with um, a lot of networking mo uh, models where they can't send packets where they want. They have to send them uh, along the pathway of the security associations that they've established. And so typically a lot of SD-WAN sort of solutions that are out there have this hub and spoke inefficiency. They don't have anywhere to any, they have anywhere to anywhere, you know, logical models. But in reality, you have to go in a hub and spoke. And, and that's because the N squared sort of anywhere to anywhere cryptography gets very, very uh, inefficient and complicated. So what we do is we do stateless uh, encryption. And, and, uh, what, and it's, it, you know, the way, and, and it can be done um, in a, if you put extra data at the end of the packet. Uh, we, we put it at the end for efficiency reasons. Um, I don't know how much you know about cryptography, and I don't want to get too deep, but we do stateless cryptography, so we can route a packet anywhere without um, having a security association as long as we have uh, uh, pre-established uh, security keys. And, and so we deliver the keys with the routing protocols, and then we can route packets anywhere, and they can be encrypted with AES-256, and, and it doesn't have to have it, uh, follow any sort of hub-and-spoke model. Um, and so that's what we're doing, and we also recognized a lot of our customers said, gee, I'm encrypting things more than once. Half my traffic's already encrypted, 
And then I'm encrypting it again in the tunnel. Um, and, and of course, that creates more fragmentation and more visibility problems and, and, and more inefficiency. And so we've actually got intelligence such that if, if a flow, if a session is already encrypted, we won't re-encrypt it. And uh, that actually really pays off. It's a surprisingly uh, easy to do and, and surprising that people don't do it. Now that it's, and I think that probably encryption definitely one of the hotter topics that, of course, you know, people think they hear metadata, they, of course, immediately associate it to, uh, you know, NSA and the stuff. That's, for whatever reason, that took over the world as, you know, educating everybody on what they believe that metadata is. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting the way that you're attacking that challenge. Now, the other question I would ask, you know, Patrick, is around the visualization side. You know, what's, what do you have as far as being able to, to visualize flow and to be able to understand the, the sort of the, the logical and sort of physical view of, of logical flow inside what you do uh, in 128 specifically? Yeah, I mean... One of the things that's great about having a session view of the network, understanding TCP sessions and their directionality, um, is that you can actually, um, without you know, the classic router, stateless router mode, you would get IP fix routers uh, reports from routers if, if they could produce them fast enough. And then you would try to take them in both directions and find the pairs to put them together to figure out a session. And the nice thing about a session-oriented router is, is like a firewall or like a DPI device, it can actually provide you with the entire view of the session or the ses all of the sessions that it has in, in, in real time. So you get a, a, a view of almost like a service layer view, something that would be almost impossible to do without a, a, a gigantic um, uh, computer and uh, all these half-flow records putting them together to make, make sessions. And so having them already put together makes it really, really easy. Um, you know, secondly, there's the concept of equal cost multipath in routing that sort of drives all the best current practices. You know, if I, if I have four interfaces and I want to have the traffic go on all four, they all essentially have to have the same cost. And then when the routers route, route those packets, they simply divide by... Um, the number of interfaces they have to make it really simple. They call it a hash, but they simply uh, look at the, the, the five parts of the address, the five tuple, do a hash, and then put the traffic on the four interfaces without discrimination. So if they have a giant flow, it gets, it gets hashed the same way as small flows, and therefore it becomes an inexact science. But zoom forward to the modern age when you have uh, software-based routing that's intelligent, you could actually, on a service-by-service -service basis, you could actually say, well, this, this service has uh, more bandwidth than this service. You could actually groom the traffic or groom the sessions onto individual interfaces, uh, getting much higher uh, utilization of those interfaces. And you could have a second or third choice that you don't use until the first choice is full. So I'll call that, you know, least cost uh, or... Um, you know, it's more like a, a tiered uh, uh, routing scheme as opposed to relying on topology independent fast rerouting. You can just go on the first choice and if the first choice is full, use the second choice. If the second choice is full, use the third choice. And I think this is um, 
the way routing should have been. I mean, I, I, why it isn't that way, I don't know. And so people, to make things equal cost, use all these sort of general rules like, well, make all your, your costs one or distances one or your number of, uh, you know, make everything the same so that traffic will flow in a parallel fashion. But those aren't the same. I mean, one goes, you know, is really inefficient, but they, they don't do it that way. And, that, and it, it, it's just... It's just crazy, really. It's like it's, yeah, it's kind of funny. We we look at where like I think the trick was we've accepted blindly that there's this level of of you know okay, you know, and it's it's very interesting. Like you said, we're so worried about you know kind of where do we build resiliency? Where do we build the the ability to add bandwidth to add you know sort of movement of size of data. And, and I think everybody kind of keeps moving the goalposts as where the right strategy is for that one. And then I guess that kind of brings me to the next one around resiliency. What is the resiliency that you build in when you, if you're going to deploy 128T, like how, how do you put resiliency within your internal environments to make sure that you have sort of guaranteed guaranteed routing at all times and, and that in the event of, you know, one of the virtual routers going away, that it's going to be able to discover and fail out to the other routes, you know, how does that process work? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the one fear of adding state to a network is that you're going to create problems uh, around resiliency in a, in a stateless, you know, uh, IP network is perceived as routing around failures uh, with ease. And so people think that the state is bad. Meanwhile, they have tunnel uh, origination and terminations. They have firewalls. They have load balancers. They have all these things that are extremely stateful everywhere, including you know the MPLS protocols that that deliver label state everywhere. And so they do have a lot of state, and the, and and uh, and they have to make everywhere they have state. They do have to make it redundant. Um, you know, so we have the same approach. We we do. Um, make our state highly available, uh, our routers are highly available. But what's really amazing is how once you have session state, how you can move sessions uh, while they're in progress. You can actually uh, restore them, move them, reroute them. If you had a signaling system like what we have and a pathway goes down and it's a critical session, you can move it in real time to a new set of, uh, I'll call it, uh, instead of calling it topology independent fast rerouting, think of it as, as a session, rerouting just, the, just that session or the sessions that you care about. Um, and we're doing this today um, and it, 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 you know, it works very, very well. For us, you know, if you remember back, I talked about putting metadata in the first packet to signal right. uh, its way through the network. When we want to move a session, we just put metadata in a midstream packet and send it, and we can move it. And then, in that case, then what would be the what would be the amount of packets that would would have to kind of die in transit before it would discover that you know at what's the the speed at which you can you can push that new route into that uh, that session? Well, you know, we're, we're, we're forwarding packets at line rate, and so when we decide we have to move a session or we want to move a session because it's deteriorating or there's too many sessions or whatever the case may be, once we decide to move it, it's as fast as sending the very next packet. Um, and then, of course, the, re the return path uh, 
will move as soon as that packet's received by the, the next top router. And I guess another one we that people are going to ask is around you know, working with with other overlays that are existing. So in the case where somebody has embraced, say they wanted to run a you know a GRE tunnels, they've got you know VXLAN, they've got overlays across a couple of networks. Because so we are seeing more and more implementations of that. I am, you know, maybe you can talk, yep. Patrick, on your your experience and in, in how many people you've seen sort of going down the road with with overlay networks and and true, you know, stretched uh, stretch VXLAN type of implementations. And how would would the one twenty eight T come into play in those environments? Yeah, I mean, in particular, the question you you I'm going to answer it with an inter data center um, answer, um, which is the use case you know where people, uh, no matter what application you're standing up in a data center, you typically want it to be at least in another data center and uh, and share some data between the two data centers, whether it's 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 backup records or it's uh, database records or something. That's typically how it works. So people need inter-data center or east-to-west traffic between data centers. They, they really need it to work. And a lot of times these application writers uh, aren't networking experts and they rely on things such as ARP or they rely on you know, being, being able to just connect with private addresses that don't overlap uh, across data centers. And that obviously creates a huge networking challenge. And the industry um, tries to stretch layer twos between um, wholly owned data centers and, and that works with private connections and things like that. That can work. Um, it, it's got a whole host of issues with, with VXLANs, but they've gotten away from that a little bit and they're routing on on top of um, layer three, they're they're using, unfortunately, in many cases, um, multicast as a way to um, replace ARP. Um, you know, we we sort of believe that um, the right solution is to use metadata in in a secure vector route between the two data centers. And what you do is is in each data center, you map local networking cons uh, things such as VLANs or or VXLANs or um, uh, IP address ranges, you know, things that are physical in one data center, you map them to uh, a tenant word, uh, or we, we, we think of it as routing with words, but you map it to, to human understandings of what that customer or that partition of that application is, and then you put that in the metadata, send it across to the other data center, and then it's interpreted on the other side locally. So that I might have VLAN 2 be associated with an application in one data center and VLAN 6 in another, and it just becomes uh, transparent, um, and it just works. And that's what we're doing uh, with our secure vector routes. Uh, we're also allowing sort of directional routes where an application in one data center can talk to a database in another da data center, but it can't go in the reverse direction. So it, it, it's like almost like the route itself has a direction. And was that Great concept was that concept built around allowing for you know for scale out or for like you know failover you know hot, hot you know secondary sites? Like what was the driver to to allow for you know directional routing and and what's the what's the challenge that it actually solves? Yeah, you know it's it, it, it's really funny because as we started to um, look at the way people are building security into um, web uh, data centers, 
they typically have multi-tiers of servers where, where the, the stuff that talks to the internet um, you know, is one set of servers and then there's another zone or another area where there's um, uh, internal only and then there's database servers that have credit cards or medical data that are even, even in a further yet hard to get zone and typically they deploy some kinds of, uh, some kinds of NAT or firewall technology between these different zones uh, to be compliant with whatever their compliance is and uh, to make sure that none of the internet traffic can ever reach the database servers. And, uh, the, and that works really well. It's expensive and it works really well in, in one direction. But the problem is the other direction. So imagine that um, ev every server in a data center has access to the entire internet. And so, and you, and you, and you, know, you say to yourself, well, why does it need that access? Well, it, it's, I'll call it the default route. And it's the reply path. It's like if, if, if I'm in Eastern Europe and I contact your data center, you need to be able to reply to me. And so you don't know where your requests are going to come from. So you basically have a default route to the entire Internet. This, this same default route could be data that's being uh, stolen. Like you have an a, a errant piece of software or a, 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 a deploy. You, you got it inside Target's network. And you got the software in there, and now it's going to slowly push data out. Well, these are sessions that are headed out of the data center. Why would there ever be a session heading out of the, the credit card server to Eastern Europe? It just doesn't make sense. There shouldn't be a route. That, you know, that shouldn't happen. So, um, and you can't just put ACLs in because an, an ACL would prevent a response to a client as well. So it, it, it's almost like you ask yourself, why don't routes have a direction? Why can't I allow someone from Eastern Europe to use my service, but not allow my service to ever initiate a session to Eastern Europe? And, and this is why, why we think routes should have directions and they should have built-in access control lists if you were starting to build the Internet over again or re-evolving it. It's definitely, this is one of those really interesting topics because there are so many, you know, use cases and so many areas of technology that it touches today. I, I literally, we could, we could go on for two hours. This would be a great topic for Tech Field Day. If you haven't already had a chance to put your, your company in front of the folks there, I would recommend you do that. They're, they're a tough crowd. They're, they're a deeply technical crowd, but there's a lot of really neat things that, that I think... Uh, that you're tackling that are would be interesting to hear, you know, in a real good, solid technical discussion. You know, this has been really great. You know, Patrick, I, I do want to thank you, uh, and you know, definitely, uh, I'm very interested in, in what's going to happen next, and, and going to be keenly watching. You know, as you kind of go through the next steps, what's the the best way for folks again to to reach you and find out more about 128T and the 128 technology team, and and you know what's coming up next? Sure. Our, our, our website is um, probably the best way to get to us. Um, I have my Twitter. I, we have a picture of every employee, including myself, there. And my uh, social media and email addresses are, are there. You could click and send me uh, a message there. Excellent. Yeah, and let's 
Like I said, I, I really appreciate how much of the transparency there is. It's always nice when you see the, the team there and, and there's a lot of, a lot of folks with some interesting sort of storied backgrounds in the industry. So it's, uh, yeah, again, I'm, I'm very excited. Thank you very much for coming on today and uh, definitely hope to have you back on in the future, you know, as you kind of make new strides, you know, with, with the business and, and any kind of new upcoming releases you have with the technology. Well, thank you, Eric. And anytime you want to discuss any of these or dig deeper, we're, we're, we would be delighted. Excellent. Well, Patrick, thank you very much for your time. And uh, again, for folks, highly recommend just you know whip on over to 128technology.com. Uh, we'll put in some links in the show notes as well, hopefully, uh, so everybody can reach us. You can reach out to me. I'm at DiscoPosti on Twitter. Uh, definitely happy to continue the conversation in the Green Circle community and uh, online everywhere. So again, Patrick, thank you very much. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again. Thank you very much. If you like what you heard here and want to hear much more, don't forget to subscribe to the GC On Demand podcast. You can go to gcondemand.io where you'll find the links in order to catch us in iTunes, Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and more. So go to gcondemand.io. Don't forget to rate us in your podcaster of choice and look for much, much more. Have a show idea? Tweet us at GC On Demand. Thanks for listening.